Less than two minutes after I walked into Susan Silverman's Jerusalem apartment, her husband Yosef returned from the supermarket. He told us he needed some help carrying in the groceries. And maybe the groceries isn't the best way to describe what Yosef had brought home. It was more like half the supermarket. He doesn't realize that it's just one day of Chag. He thinks it's the Warsaw Ghetto. <laughs> okay, so what do we have here? Um, we have lots of different kinds of cheese. We have salmon. Um, I'm making lots of like red and yellow beets. And you know, the fruits and veggies in Israel are so good. So we're going to have lots of that. Um, we have the traditional stuff. We'll have, you know, horseradish and we'll have different kinds of things for the Seder plate, like different kinds of haroset. And, so it's a vegetarian side though. Yeah. So instead of the lamb shank bone, we have a beetroot. And <laughs> um, what else is here? Lots of matzah. Susan's many things. A reform rabbi, an author, an activist, a feminist, a mom. She's one of the leaders of the Women of the Wall movement and was on Jew Radica's 2013 list of the top 10 sexiest rabbis alive. But five days before the Passover Seder, and with a mound of groceries in her kitchen, she has one thing on her mind. We're going to make salmon and we're going to make rice and salad. Well, that... And the fate of roughly 40,000 African asylum seekers in Israel. See, Susan is one of the founders of Miklat Israel, or Sanctuary Israel. So the idea is that we are finding places for, for sanctuary for asylum seekers throughout Israel. Over the last few months, Miklat Israel enlisted nearly 3,000 Israeli families and dozens of kibbutzim, who have all signed up to invite refugees to come live with them. And as Passover neared, Susan and her colleagues thought of yet another project. Let's also ask people if they want to open their homes for Seder, and lots of people asked to be invited, and, and even more people uh, offered their homes. Susan herself is going to have 40 people at her Seder. I guess a person for every year we wandered in the desert, yeah. <laughs> Among all those guests will be a family of Sudanese refugees, close friends from back when they were all living together on Kibbutz Ktura, near Eilat. Their youngest child is our daughter Ashira's age, 14, and they've been best friends since they were three years old. And she's an Israeli child, an utterly Israeli child. It would be absurd for her to live anywhere outside of Israel. I mean, the child, she's, a, she's big in Noam, in the you know, conservative youth movement. She knows all the brachot. She's into it. She, you know, she's just Israeli. She wants to be in the army. She's like a, a Zionist. She's probably a bigger Zionist than I am. And when Susan says that it would be absurd for this girl to live anywhere else, that isn't a hypothetical thought experiment. In fact, it could soon become reality. On April 1st, two days after the Seder, the government of Israel is supposed to begin deporting refugees, reportedly to third-party African countries. The issue is being discussed in the Supreme Court, and there have been huge weekly demonstrations for the last several months. It still isn't clear what exactly will happen. But in the meantime, all over Israel, families will be welcoming in refugees for what could be their last seder in Israel. As we tell the tale of our exodus from slavery in Egypt, they will share theirs. 
quite literally the asylum seekers who are here have come up through Egypt and from a place of great oppression through Sinai, which was deeply, deeply dangerous, and into Israel, hoping that, you know, the people who know that story will take care of them. We reach back and we say, like, it's as if we ourselves have come from Egypt, and here we have people who actually have come from that and who don't have to imagine it, but who are sharing their actual personal stories with us. And really, that's what the Pesach Seder is all about. About telling and then retelling the greatest coming out story in Jewish history. A story of venturing out into the unknown, of wandering in the desert, and of seeking refuge in a new home. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. And today, just in time for Passover, we bring you Coming Out, Getting In. Two surprising stories of people journeying out of their countries and communities, leaving behind almost everything but their identity, and searching in different ways for their place in the world. Act 1, The Hasbara Hero We've all probably heard the word Hasbara. Literally, it means explanation. But Hasbara is really much more than that. It's a concerted effort to influence the international perception of Israel, to shape public sentiments and get foreign politicians, opinion makers, and just regular people to view Israel in a positive light. Of course, every country engages in what's called public diplomacy. But Hasbara is both wider and more ambitious. The Israeli government is involved, but so are nonprofits, lobbyists, academics, students, and journalists. For Israel's passionate defenders, Hasbara is basically just an exercise in clearing up misunderstandings, countering anti-Israel biases, and giving a voice to the Jewish state's amazing achievements. For its critics, however, Hasbara is flat-out propaganda. Cynical whitewashing at best. Lies and fabrications, at worst. But everyone agrees that there's a craft involved. Like all advertising, Hasbara relies on compelling narratives. The perfect Hasbara story, and I really don't mean this sarcastically, plays up Israel's innovation, openness, and humanitarianism. Think Startup Nation. Think Gay Pride in Tel Aviv. Or even Natural Disaster Relief in Haiti or Nepal. Stories like that are upbeat, touching, shareable, and, hopefully, viral. Now, sometimes Israel has to go digging for these Hasbara stories. And sometimes, like in the piece we're about to hear from Samuel Throp, they just fall right into its lap. The man at the center of those reports is Payam Feili. He's 33. When he arrived in Israel at the end of 2015, he seemed to be everywhere. On TV, on the radio, in newspapers. His story was pretty outstanding. A gay Iranian writer, not Jewish, 
had received special permission to come to Israel and was now determined to make this land his new home. If Payam had come from any other country, his arrival in Tel Aviv would probably have gone unnoticed. But Israel and Iran, no need to state the obvious, are not exactly close allies. Payam is from Iran, and Iran is a, is a serious strategic threat to, to Israel, and it not only denies our right to exist, but is actually trying to destroy us. That makes the story unique. That's Michael Oren. I'm Dr. Michael Oren. I'm the deputy minister in the prime minister's office. Michael, Israel's former ambassador in Washington, is also a Hasbara ninja. He's one of the country's most vocal and unrelenting defenders abroad. Michael's never actually met Payam. He's only heard about his story in the press, but you can count on him to recognize good Hasbara material when he sees it. Clearly, the image that emerges from his story goes against the grain. It's underscoring a central truth about Israel, and it's dispelling uh, a fundamental untruth about Israel, that Israel is not a liberal society, Israel is not an opening and welcoming society. Those news clips you heard a moment ago were from the first few weeks after Payam arrived in Israel. He looks elated to be here, eager to recount how, as a gay man, he escaped persecution in Iran. And just how much he loves Israel. With his chic leather jackets, colorful scarves, bright lipstick and blue nail polish, his entire persona is a refusal to conform to gender norms. Combined with the oversized Star of David tattoo on his neck, he's straight out of gay, Persian, Israel-loving central casting. His homosexuality is a big part of why he ended up settling in a gay-friendly city like Tel Aviv. It's also a big part of his Hasbara appeal. So, with all that, you might expect him to swiftly become the darling of the Israeli Hasbara apparatus. To see him on tour with Michael Oren and Alan Dershowitz, keynoting APAC, singing the praises of the Zionist state. Well, not quite. As a refugee in Israel, I suffer a lot. I asked for asylum. And uh, no one from the government helped me or offered me something. That's Payam. He's the kind of guy you would love to meet for a cup of coffee. He listens, he's funny, he's a terrible gossip, and a storyteller with a rare ability to laugh at himself. He can also be very soft-spoken, even when he's talking about the most important things. Like how, two years after he arrived, the Israeli government hasn't even begun processing his application for refugee status. How he's stuck in legal limbo, unable to work, to travel, even to open a bank account, with no end in sight. You asked me if it's good for them to accept me as a refugee, and they don't do it a lot, but they can use this story. It's not uh, important for me why and how they will do it. Just I want to live in this life that I made in Israel. So Payam has boundless potential to be a major player in Israel's Hasbara machine, and he knows it. The timing is everything in life. And in a moment when the country is in the midst of an immigration and refugee crisis on the one hand, and grasping for any good press on the other, it isn't clear how Payam's story will end. Payam was born in 1985, six years after the 1979 Islamic Revolution, and smack in the middle of the eight-year-long Iran-Iraq War. His hometown, Kerman Shah, was bombed repeatedly by the Iraqi Air Force, so Payam and his family fled. After moving around a lot, they finally settled in the capital, Tehran. Payam was 12. 
Although he and his family escaped without any physical wounds, Payam was left with mental ones. The cut deep. I think that I felt everything double or triple. <laughs> As a teenager, symptoms of post-traumatic stress, depression, bipolarism, and a diagnosed learning disability pushed Payam to slowly recede from the outside world. At 15, he stopped attending school. Soon he barely left the house at all. All my connection is outside was stop, finish. I didn't have any reason to go out. No friends. Nothing, just to my psychologist and come back. But cloistered in his room, as his physical world fell away, his imagination and mental world blossomed. It was there that three truths solidified for Payam. He was gay, he was a writer, and he loved Judaism. Everything happened to me in the age of this fucking 15. Even before that I understood that I am not interested to girls and I want to be always with boys and to do something with them, but uh, I, I was too small, I couldn't understand uh, what is this. But in the age of 15, slowly, slowly I understood that uh, maybe I'm a little different. What is that like, realizing that you're gay in Tehran? I was afraid, I remember. I was afraid. With good reason. Homosexuality is a capital offense in Iran. Gay men and lesbians can be rounded up by the police at parties, on the street, or in their homes. When you are gay, it's like to give permission to the government to kill you. So for my family, it wasn't easy to know that I'm gay. Technically, the testimony of two eyewitnesses is required to convict someone of homosexual acts. But in reality, judges have wide discretion to convict even without much proof. Some gay men are pushed to undergo sexual reassignment surgery, which is legal, and to live as transgender women. Though gay life does exist underground, most gay Iranians spend years hiding who they are from their family and friends. The pressure is immense. Depression, paranoia, and loneliness are rampant. Suicide attempts are commonplace. Hayam, too, has tried to kill himself. It was in the midst of all this turmoil that Payam discovered Jewish culture. So when I was in the age of 15, I wanted to know what is Quran, what they say, what is Torah, what the Christians say. This stuff I was just curious to know. I didn't find Quran so beautiful, but uh, I found the uh, Torah opposite. Yes, there is uh, aggressive things in Torah also, but it was beautiful. Till now I have Torah in Persian, and when I'm in trouble, all the nights I read Torah. <laughs> Maybe because the Iranian government demonizes Zionism and the Jewish state so much. Payam is far from being the only Iranian of his generation who is curious about Judaism or Israel, sometimes even to a surprising degree. I once met a young Iranian who told me that he is addicted to watching the broadcasts of Knesset parliamentary debates on Israel's version of C-SPAN. Payam's interest was different, though. He wanted to escape the loneliness and isolation of his everyday life. Jewish culture, not just the Bible, but the Holocaust and Israel, too, opened up a fantasy world to do exactly that. It became a major theme in his writing. 
Payam published his first book, a poetry collection, when he was 19. But the government censors ordered that two poems be removed before publication. This came as no surprise to Payam. Iran has a vibrant cultural and literary scene. But before any book can be published in Iran, it first has to be approved by the government's Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance. When the censored version of the book finally came out, it did well, selling out two editions. The success spurred him to keep writing. More poems, short stories, and novellas followed. But his best known and most infamous book is the novel I Will Grow, I Will Bear Fruit, Figs, written when he was 24. The story is told from the perspective of a nameless, young gay man who is secretly in love with his heterosexual friend, whom he calls Poker. The book unfolds like a surreal, hallucinatory dream. The Afghan groundskeeper spreads clouds above us. Poker grows tall. His branches become a nest of birds. I extend a branch, coil it around a glass of water, and pour it at Poker's feet. Poker sucks up the water with his roots. The young chick's warm and soft bellies cool off. The air grows humid. The birds bathe. The Queen of Israel smiles. Sara Khalili is one of the most important translators of modern Persian literature working today. And when Payam first sent her a copy of Figs, she nearly fell out of her chair. I spoke to her on Skype. I've never read anything close to this by a young Iranian writer at all. And there are some very good works of literature being produced in Iran, but nothing like this, or at least nothing that I've come across. But all these rich literary illusions weren't important to the Iranian government censors. As far as they were concerned, all that mattered were the book's first three sentences. I am 21. I am a homosexual. I like the afternoon sun. In these last hundred years, I don't know before that. I don't know all the history. Even before the revolution or after, nobody, writer or actors or dancer or I don't know what, whatever, nobody said that I'm gay. In this Iran, nobody did it. The only one that did these stupid things, it was me. Figs was not allowed to be published in Iran, but Payam didn't give up. Like many other Iranian writers facing censorship, he arranged to publish the book outside the country, with a Persian-language publisher in Germany. Reviewers, all Iranians living in exile, of course, praised him for his bravery, his skill, and his innovation. The government's response was swift and brutal. Payam was blacklisted, and his family began receiving threatening phone calls. Then, in 2011, they came for him. And they don't come to you as a police with some paper that they have a right to arrest you. Middle of the night, they come to you, they catch you. He was gagged and blindfolded, and didn't know where they were taking him. You have no idea. This is the way. After being detained for a month, Payam was summarily released with a warning. No charges were filed against him, and he was never taken before a judge. A year later, he was arrested again, and released again. But none of this stopped him. He just kept writing and giving interviews to foreign journalists, talking brazenly about the repression of gays in Iran. Sometimes people said to me that, wow, you are so brave. I said, mommy, I'm not brave. I'm so stupid. But if I back again, in that situation, I, I do it again. 
it's so heavy and uncomfortable for me when someone wants to put me down because something that I am. I'm not so brave. I'm afraid of many things, even simple things. But uh, if someone want to tell me that don't be this that you are, I cannot stand it. Despite two stints in jail, Payam continued to tempt fate. He contacted Orly Noy, Israel's leading translator of contemporary Persian literature. Payam asked whether she'd be willing to translate figs into Hebrew. Excited, she happily agreed, and even found him an Israeli publisher. In February 2014, the publisher emailed him his contract. I never forget. It was 12 in the noon. My Israeli publisher sent me the contract. And I signed it and I sent them 12 in the noon. They broke the door of my home in the 12 in the 9. Just 12 hours they needed to realize that this uh, Persian poet is doing something with some Israeli publisher. They, they took me and they put me in a container for 44 days. I didn't have no idea if they will rape me because they do that. Payam was repeatedly interrogated. Four men, investigator, asked me such stupid questions. And of course, they know everything about me. They know what I ate, what, what I wrote to someone. They know everything. But they will ask you, they do the investigation just to make a case, to give it to the judge. It's funny, Sam. One of the questions was, who gave you money to write this book in Israel? Which Jewish or which Israeli gave you money to write this book? You said good things about Israel. Who gave you money to do this? And I I said, I wish someone gave me money for this. No one gave me money. (laughs) He was held in a shipping container in an unknown location for six long weeks. In the end, they made him sign a statement, swearing he'd never talk about what happened to him and never speak to the foreign press again. With that, he was let go. But just as soon as he got out, the first call he made was to an Israeli reporter. I don't know why I choose all the time dangerous way in my life. So, the government turned to more drastic measures. Vicious articles attacking Payam began appearing in the conservative Iranian media. They called him a traitor and a spy, and said that Israel was paying him to write his books. After his detentions and interrogations, this might not sound like much, but these articles were the beginning of a coordinated attack, laying the public relations groundwork to justify another arrest, trial, and ultimately, Payam's execution. Payam's friends and supporters at gay rights and humanitarian organizations outside of Iran knew it, began receiving panicked phone calls. All the organization called me and told me, Mommy, this is the end. It's not funny anymore. You don't have any chance. They started to do it. After all these articles, you are going to the jail, and after that they make show in the television that you did this, you did that, and they will kill you. That very day, Saturday, June 13th, 2014, he left Iran with two suitcases and his entire savings, 
$1,300. I ran away to Turkey without any plan. I didn't know what will be. Turkey, I didn't want to stay in Turkey, of course. Just I ran away to be not in Iran. But Payam did end up staying in Turkey for more than a year. Most Iranians seeking asylum outside their homeland turn to the United Nations or other international refugee agencies to begin the process of resettlement. Payam, however, didn't have to. His publishers around the world sent him enough royalties to live on, and a bunch of NGOs were working on his behalf to find a country that would take him in. First Switzerland seemed like an option, then Norway, and finally the United States, where he was accepted to a writer-in-residence program in Pittsburgh. Then, in September 2015, just after he received his much-coveted American visa, he woke up to a surprise. I saw thousand messages from my Israeli friends. They wrote me that you can come here. I didn't understand. Without Payam's knowledge, an Israeli journalist had discussed his case with Miri Regev, Israel's minister of culture. Regev, like Michael Oren, whom we heard at the beginning, probably immediately recognized the PR potential of an Israel-loving Iranian. She quickly persuaded then-interior minister Silvan Shalom to issue Payam a special artist visa, rarely, if ever, granted to Iranian citizens. Without a second thought, Payam relinquished the American asylum that other refugees wait years, often fruitlessly, to receive. From the outside, this seems... well, to me at least, it seems like a pretty mind-boggling decision. America promised stability, freedom, a job, a community of writers. All Israel had to offer was a short-term artist visa, which, if he accepted it, meant he could never return home. But Judaism in Israel had been Payam's imaginary refuge ever since he was a teenager. Listen, always I thought, if something happened and I have to leave Iran, the only place that I can live in is Israel. And so, a few weeks later, Payam Feli landed at Ben-Gurion Airport. From the moment he arrived, Payam was already planning to apply for permanent asylum in Israel. As a non-Jewish Iranian, there's really no other way for him to stay in the country long term. His arrival made a monumental splash in the Israeli and international press. Payam was photographed by the Mediterranean Sea for the New York Times, on the roof of the Tel Aviv City Hall for AP, and did the rounds of the morning shows on Israeli TV. After a few months though, when the attention had died down, he became just one of the tens of thousands of asylum seekers living in the country. And Israel, as you might guess, is not an easy place to be a refugee. Most asylum seekers here come from Africa, particularly war-torn Eritrea and Sudan. These refugees have been in the news a lot lately. The same Mary Regev, who was so instrumental in Payam's case, has famously called them a cancer. You'd think Payam's international fame and Hasbara benefit for Israel would mean he could just jump the line. But Payam had to follow the same standard procedure for gaining political asylum as everyone else. The problem with this procedure is that it has no timeline. So it's in the system, but that's where it stops. That's Chagai Kalai, Payam's lawyer. It's a very common situation in Israel where asylum seekers just wait. The, the request is pending for years and years. While they wait, Asylum seekers don't have access to the country's regular health insurance system and can't get legal work permits. But being an Iranian asylum seeker has its particular challenges. Payam isn't even allowed to open a bank account. 
when I went to the bank, they told me maybe I will send the money to do terror or... <laughs> I, I'm not sure if they need my 5,000 shekel every month to do terror. Israel's Population and Immigration Authority, which handles requests from asylum seekers, declined to be interviewed about Payam's case. But after many emails and phone messages, they did send me an official response. Mr. Payam Feli came to Israel almost two years ago as an artist and poet with an exceptional authorization granted by the then Interior Minister, and with the support of the relevant minister, his entry was approved for two weeks only. That part is underlined, and in bold. Mr. Faley did not uphold his obligations, and did not leave the country at the end of two weeks, but instead applied for asylum with the unit responsible for asylum seekers soon after. As is well known, the unit deals with thousands, if not tens of thousands, of asylum requests, and Mr. Faley's request is also being dealt with. So that's a formal answer from the interior office. I think the rhetorics of this answer tells you uh, uh, most of the story. They could easily give him an asylum, and we were optimistic that that's what will happen. It's even a good uh, story for Israel. And yet the reaction was very clearly hostile. But governmental hostility notwithstanding, and unlike in Iran, or even in Turkey, Payam can live openly as a gay man in Tel Aviv. It's a gay city, you know. He is free to be himself. He is safe. Not only that, Payam feels at home here. He feels Israeli. People made me this feeling that I'm part of the family. This isn't just an empty boast. Payam is surrounded by Israeli friends, sprinkles his sentences with Hebrew words, and looks and acts the part of a hip, gay Tel Avivi. Payam still writes every day. When we meet, he reads me parts of his latest work, but who will read it? Unlike in America or Europe, there is no natural Persian readership here. No community of Iranian intellectuals in exile whom he could join and who could support him. For someone else, maybe, this wouldn't be such a burden. But for Payam? The only thing that I can explain myself with is that I write. I don't know without this who am I. Sarah Khalili, Payam's English translator, told me that this is not only a personal loss for Payam, but also for Persian literature. I think this work could be a groundbreaker, let's say. However, it will not be read. And I find that tragic. And I'm not sure whether Payam realized the magnitude and the gravity of the decision he was taking. Payam is frustrated. It's a shame for this government and for this Jewish society who were all the historia immigrated or refugee. As a refugee in Israel, I suffer a lot. Honestly, there's something about this that rubs me the wrong way. When Payam complains, as he sometimes does, that the Israeli government is acting shamefully, it's hard to fully sympathize. After all, he had opportunities to go elsewhere, to America. He chose to be here of his own free will. What exactly does he think Israel owes him? But I think Payam's frustration comes not from a sense of entitlement or lack of gratitude. Instead, as odd as it seems to say it, I think it comes from a feeling of patriotism. He cares so passionately for this place and identifies so strongly with it that he is willing to call out its faults, out of love. And that may just be the most powerful kind of Israel advocacy. Before Payam came here, Israel was just a fantasy. And reality 
well, it's very different. He isn't really bitter. He doesn't regret his choice. But for all that Israel has given him, it's also taken. You see, this story doesn't have a Hasbara-like happy ending. In fact, it doesn't really have an ending at all. Where are we? You are in my city, Tel Aviv. <laughs> We're walking down Rothschild Boulevard, the city's tree-lined Central Avenue. It's sunny and warm. It's better to go here, not to go 20 minutes. We stroll past Israelis riding their bicycles, walking their dogs, and sipping iced lattes in the cafes. To my mind, at least, this is about the furthest away Payam could have come from Tehran. But not to him. If you are from Tehran, you can find many things the same. The feeling, all this mess, all the balagan, you know. It's reminded me many times. Tehran is big, but the feeling, it reminds me Tehran. Samuel Thrope. Samuel is a writer and Persian translator living in Jerusalem. His latest book, The Israeli Republic, is available on Amazon. Like Payam, the hero of our next story is also trying to reinvent himself in a new context. But his past, and really his present, make that very difficult. Just a quick warning, there's some sexually explicit moments in this story, so if you're listening with kids, take that into account. Okay, Act 2, Orthodox Pride. Here's Zev Levi. Nadav Schwartz used to fit in. I went to a yeshiva high school right after high school. I started learning at Yeshiva Takotel. He served as a chaplain in the army, did shlichut, or community education work in Chicago, and then enrolled at Hadassah College in Jerusalem. This was basically his first time living outside his religious bubble. And there was a guy in my class who had a wedding ring. And I said to him, oh, cool, you're secular, you're married, what's the, what's the story? So he goes, yeah, I'm married to my husband. And that was the last time I sat next to him in class. I did not want to have anything to do with this world. To Nadav, his gay classmate represented a world to be avoided, to be feared. You see, back then... I didn't say that I'm gay, I said I'm attracted to men. Because it's not somebody I am, it's something that I have. A lot has changed since then. One of my jobs is to organize a Pride March in Jerusalem. But then again, a lot has stayed the same. His story begins in 1995, in a classroom in Yeshivat Nechalim, a religious boarding school near Petach Tikva. Already at the age of 12... I knew that something's different. At that time, the top model was uh, Cindy Crawford. And there was a picture of her in a bathing suit. And we were all in only boys' school. So all the kids in my class got really excited over the picture. And I remember looking at the picture and not understanding what's happening there. And what's interesting, I remember looking at it from different angles to try to see maybe I'm just missing something. And... That, like, sealed the deal. Like, I was, knew that I have no idea what is interesting with women. Around the time of his bar mitzvah, Nadav realized he was attracted to men. But he wasn't about to say that out loud, especially not at home. I was thinking that 
gay people, if they really wanted to, they could change. I always thought that AIDS was their punishment from God. That's Nadav's mother, Judy. You know, those people in Tel Aviv dancing in the, in the streets? Those are, I mean, not good boys with learning in the yeshiva with their tzitzis and their gemara. So, not surprisingly, Nadav's teenage years were dominated by one overarching emotion. Fear. People who don't come from an LGBT background don't understand how terrified you are that people would find out that you're gay. I'm not exaggerating when you, I'm saying you feel life and death situation. They might stone me to death. My parents might throw me out and I'll starve on the streets. To survive, Nadav went to war with his own body, demanding that it not betray his inclinations to the outside world. He trained himself to walk in a manly way. He sat on his hands to avoid making feminine gestures. But even though he monitored himself incessantly, he still didn't feel safe. You're, you're constantly thinking, of what am I doing? When I went into the dormitory, I was afraid what would happen if I speak during my sleep. So I was afraid to go to sleep. It's all the time, all the time, being aware and being afraid. As a teenager, Nadav's priorities were clear. I was very serious about my Judaism. I was working really hard and learning what I want to be as an Orthodox person. And I did not deal at all with the topic of being gay. You might think Nadav was fooling himself by refusing to acknowledge his homosexuality, but he saw it differently. To him, sexual attraction was like hair color or fitness level. It was non-essential and could change. He was attracted to men, but he could get around that, even if it would take some effort. I would pray to God to change me. I was crying a lot, especially on Yom Kippur, trying to ask him, change me, change me, change me. And people thought, oh, wow, he's such a tzaddik, he's praying so hard, he's crying, and I would feel even worse. Because I'm not crying because I'm, I'm sad for what I'm doing, I'm sad because I'm who I am. I'm, I'm a horrible person. Secretly, he registered for conversion therapy and was assigned a therapist. I met with him and I remember his smile. I hated his smile. I just hated it. It's like, I know everything and you know nothing smile. And he was like trying to look for reasons why my, my father made me gay. I couldn't feel that I trust him. And he... It was really obnoxious. When therapy failed, Nadav started treating his sexual desires like any other religious struggle, with the help of rabbis. At his post-high school seminary, Yeshivat Kotel, he set up meetings with a few trusted rabbis. But these meetings all went the same way. I didn't say gay. I used the phrase netiot afuchot. Netiot afuchot, or backward orientation. But the rabbis had no advice or wouldn't get back to him. Some even avoided shaking his hand. With no hope to be found, Nadav continued living with his secret and his fear. From the little he could gather from the Orthodox world, the cure he was seeking was marriage to a woman. Was the thought that this attraction would go away after the wedding day? That was one of the thoughts, that it would probably go away. And if it won't go away, you can still function with it. And then if not, it doesn't matter. You can still live wonderful life without it. The it Nadav is referring to here is sex. 
he thought sex with a woman would make him straight or be enjoyable even if he wasn't straight. And even if sex wasn't enjoyable, he could see himself in a happy celibate marriage. And to be honest, I can understand why Nadav thought that. In his modern orthodox community, which is also my modern orthodox community, boys are taught that sexual desires need to be controlled. Rabbis say that if you ignore sexual thoughts, they just go away. The goal is to delay them until marriage. And even then, sex is reserved for specific times of the month and is only okay in appropriate places, settings, and positions. To me, it's not such a giant leap for someone who thinks of masturbation and pornography as urges that must be overcome to think the same of sexual preference. So to Nadav, a religious life, by definition, meant marrying a woman. And that's where his mind was at when he entered university and had that uncomfortable reaction to his openly gay classmate. I did not want to live gay. I didn't want to have anything with it. To onlookers, Nadav was a normal religious guy. He was a student, a part-time teacher, and he was dating women. Just to clarify, in his orthodox world, dating is a few months of restaurant dinners and scenic picnics where a young man and woman see if they want to get married. There's no privacy and definitely no touching. Nadav went on many such dates with many different women, but these relationships didn't go anywhere. At a certain point, I would tell her, would you date a gay person? I'd randomly like put it in the conversation and she would usually say no. And then I would call her the next day and say, listen, it's not working. I don't know why. In the summer of 2009, Nadav started going out with a fellow teacher at his school. We'll call her Tsipora, even though that's not her real name. Tsipora was a few years older than Nadav and different than his other girlfriends. They had been colleagues and friends before going out, so their dates felt less like job interviews. They were comfortable around each other and could just talk like two real people. It felt normal and they really fell for each other. After five months of dating on a warm Jerusalem night, they sat on a candlelit balcony. He took the wrapper of a crembo, her favorite chocolate treat, and fashioned it into a ring. But before offering it to her, he said, I want to tell you something before we get engaged, if we're getting engaged. I told her that I'm actually attracted to men. To Tsipora, this came out of nowhere. She needed time to think. Was this a good idea? Was this what God wanted? Two weeks passed before she had an answer. And she was very, very understanding. She's an amazing, amazing person. And she said, I know it won't be easy and I know that there'll be difficulties. Let's take it easy. Tsipora, like Nadav, viewed his attraction as a challenge they would have to overcome. A personal sacrifice they would gladly make in service of God and of each other. Sex can be a taboo subject among religious singles, so they only spoke about it in very general terms. Nadav didn't offer any further explanations, and Tsipora didn't ask for them. At Tsipora's urging, they walked to the sandstone plaza of the Western Wall, and Nadav dropped to one knee. I was very excited. I was very happy, like, okay, finally, it happens. I'm a normal person. It will disappear. It will be okay. It won't matter. Just a few short months later, in early February 2010, they got married. We didn't like plan ridiculous things and our wedding was very simple and very nice and very humble and like that's who we were. 
At the ceremony, Nadav performed a little something he'd prepared for his new wife. I made her a dance, like it says in the Talmud, how do you dance in front of the bride? So I made her a dance collecting different dances from all over the world. Uh, it was very nice. And I'm looking, sitting there at the wedding, looking at him do this dance. Again, that's Judy, Nadav's mother. And I'm saying to myself, to no one else, my gosh, if he wasn't getting married, I'd think he was gay. The thought only lasted a second. It was just rare for Judy to see her son so exuberant. I was probably one of the happiest people on earth that night. By getting married, Nadav felt he was free. After all the hiding and pleading, he would finally be what he had wanted to be his whole life. Normal. Straight. But it just didn't work. The young newlyweds were devastated to find that Nadav's unwanted feelings had survived their wedding. They were both hurting, both lonely. So Nadav sought out a psychologist to help him develop an attraction to women. The plan was for Tsipora to join his sessions at some stage, but that never happened. In his psychologist's office, for the first time in his life, he spoke about his attraction without feeling judged, and he realized that it's not something that I have, it's something that I am. His attraction couldn't be molded or manipulated. He was gay. It was as simple as that. But that realization didn't change his life in the way you might think. I went through the opposite journey that most LGBT people go through. First I decided what kind of religious person I want to be, and then I decided what kind of gay I want to be. As a religious man, he still wanted to live the ideal religious life and raise a family with a loving wife. It's just that she's the wrong woman for me. Sipora didn't sign up to marry a gay man. She signed up to marry a straight man who was fighting gay thoughts. Nadav wanted to be loved for who he was. And Sipora? My wife wanted to get uh, divorced as fast as possible. After four months from our wedding, we were divorced already. So... In a way, it was good because it was a clean cut, but it was also like, whoa, what was just happened? The marriage was over in the blink of an eye. Nadav tried to get back to normal life, but he couldn't. I was supposed to work in another school the next year. The principal called me to say that the rabbi of the school decided that I can't work here next year. And I asked him, why? And he said, I don't know. Do you know? Mere weeks after the divorce... It turned out that Nadav's nightmare scenario that had haunted him since childhood was suddenly coming true. My divorcee's family found out that I'm gay, and I found out that her family also called schools to tell them not to hire me. They were outing me all over Jerusalem. With just a few vengeful phone calls from his ex-in-laws, Nadav's life began unraveling before his eyes. The years he spent fighting exhaustion in his yeshiva dorm, wasted. The painstaking work he'd put into policing his voice and body language. All for nothing. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I was counting the people who knew. Nadav understood that it was only a matter of time until his family got wind of the news. We kept asking questions about the divorce, why the divorce, what happened, what's going on. I asked you if she could be pregnant. And you said to me, no, it's impossible. They obviously found his abrupt divorce confusing and mysterious, and he didn't want them to learn the truth via gossip. So he asked his parents to step into their spare room and close the door behind them. And 
when my son with his sits out and his big kippah comes and says, Ima, I'm gay, I was like totally shocked. And I think there was total silence in the room. Nadav was kind of leaning on the bed. I'd say he was probably shaking because he didn't know how we would react. There were tears in everybody's eyes, of course. I told them that I'm gay, but I'm going to marry a woman again. We came out of the room, and all of a sudden my daughter says, What's the matter? What's going on? Is Nadav gay? Nadav's mother needed a little longer than her daughter to come to terms with the news. On our journey, we had to realize that uh, they're not going to be able to change. There's nothing you can do. Their brains are wired different. But Tsipora's family wasn't as understanding. They tried to blackmail my parents. Tsipora's family began sending letters to Nadav's family detailing their grievances. The latest is from one of her siblings. He's a lawyer. Here are some excerpts. Nadav conducted a human experiment. Literally. He's a man with backward orientations who wanted to see if he could handle married life. I mean, to check his sexual persuasion, he could have just hired a prostitute. That way no one would have gotten hurt. But instead, he went out with this righteous, innocent girl who may be a little naive. He let her get attached to him, and after months of dating, only hinted at his homosexuality. These days, the only marriage offers she receives are delusional because she's divorced. Nadav's actions were perverted and they destroyed her spirit. It's that simple. As far as they're concerned, Nadav's marriage to Tsipora was abuse. Having known he was attracted to men, they think his entire relationship with her was just a ploy to see if he enjoyed sex with women. A ploy that ruined her life. They say her pain is his fault, and he should pay for it. They claim damages. In the letter, which is broken up into 21 bullet points, they demand 200,000 shekels and threaten to file a public lawsuit. If you choose to transfer the funds, we'll see the issue as closed from a legal perspective. But in terms of morals and values, your debt won't end until the day you die. A few lawyers suggested that Nadav and his parents countersue, but they chose not to respond in any way. Nadav says he didn't want to escalate the situation. He didn't want to suffer the ordeal of a trial. And as much as possible, he didn't want to hurt Sipora. They're not over it, and it's very sad. I can say, listen, I told her before, and I was open about it. It doesn't calm me down knowing that there's somebody out there crying and sad because of me. And knowing that they're not letting her continue moving on, in the end, it doesn't help me feel better. Though his family was supportive, potential employers in his community were less than open-minded. Nadav's career in religious schools was being killed, one conversation at a time. As all this drama was unfolding, Nadav flew to New York City. And there, completely anonymous, he decided to go check what gay people do. I went into the Apple store there, and I searched for gay things New York, something like that, and I went to a gay bar. Nadav struck up a conversation with a man at the bar, who couldn't believe that at 27, he'd never even kissed a guy. He came to give me a kiss, and I was shocked, and I jumped back, and he apologized, and I said, let's kiss, but not here. So we went aside and we kissed, and I realized what I was missing from a simple kiss. That's where my life started to change. 
in that exact point. Nadav decided then and there that he no longer wanted to marry a woman. Marriage was not his cure after all. Full of apprehension, he flew home and shared his decision with his parents. It was basically another coming out conversation. This time, though, Judy was better prepared. And I said to Nadav two things. Safe sex. And when you'll have a boyfriend, you'll be able to bring him home. I think I stood by that. I hope you stand by the other thing. I'm not saying it again. (laughs) So what about his relationship to God? His commitment to orthodox law? After all, the book of Leviticus does say, You shall not lie with a man the way you lie with a woman. The Torah talks about anal sex. It doesn't talk about identity. It doesn't talk about partnership. Nadav explained to me that it's more common than you might think for gay men all around the world not to have anal sex. For some, it's an issue of comfort or health. But in Israel, there are people who abstain purely because of the biblical prohibition. And that group of people? It's called the Deoraita Gays. Deoraita Gays. A Hebrew phrase containing no Hebrew words. The second word, Gays, you obviously know. And the first word, Deoraita, is Aramaic and means from the Torah. Torah Gays. As I understand it, men who self-identify as Deoraita Gays believe in having long-term partnerships, living together and having active sex lives, just no anal sex. Besides the intimate questions, religious gay couples also have to navigate the world of Jewish traditions. Here, nothing is organized. Who does the Kiddush? And who uh, breaks the bread? And who uh, lights the candles? Am I supposed to stay away from my partner? When I'm dating a woman, I won't sit next to her in shul. Nadav started volunteering at the Jerusalem Open House, a community organization that provides LGBTQ-related support and resources. Eventually, that turned into his full-time job. We do a lot of things trying to help as many needs for the Jerusalem LGBTQ community. In 2015, Nadav was one of 44 Orthodox LGBTQ Israelis to voluntarily publish their names and pictures online in a campaign titled Our Faces. He was excited, of course, but he was also petrified. This was five years after he was outed, and he was still frightened by the idea of people finding out. He says he came out online as Orthodox and gay to ensure that young people in the closet learned from his mistakes. Namely, the mistake of trying to change who you are, and the mistake of feeling guilty for not succeeding. Today, Nadav and his boyfriend have no plans to get married. Though I see him at my local synagogue now and then, he occasionally hosts services at his home that are orthodox and LGBTQ friendly. I asked Nadav what he'd say to his 13-year-old self if he could. For a moment, he was silent, then answered heavily, Don't try to find a wife. After another pause, he added, And remember, you're not a bad person. Zev Levi And that's our episode. You can spend your entire Passover catching up on all our past episodes, in both English and Hebrew, on our site, on iTunes, and on any of the other main podcast platforms. Also, if you really want to help us grow and reach new listeners, there's apparently a simple and painless way to do so. 
just go to iTunes, rate us, and write a review. That's it. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, simply drop us a line at sponsor at prx.org. We're about to embark on another huge U.S. tour with a brand new live show for Israel's 70th birthday. It's called Mixtape, the stories behind Israel's ultimate playlist. And it's going to be really great. So, listeners in Norfolk, Virginia, Toronto, Seattle, New York, Tenafly, Princeton, Palm Beach, and Amherst, don't miss the opportunity to see us live, together with amazing accompanying art and the largest band we've ever toured with. Check out our website for dates and details. All the rest of you will be able to hear audio versions of the live show in our next few episodes. By the way, if you want us to come to your town next time around, email us at livetour at israelstory.org. Thanks to Orly Noy, Arsham Parsi, and Emily Dabush for help with Payam's story. In order to better understand the orthodox position regarding homosexuality, we talked to Dror Zandman, Rabbi Dov Berkowitz, and a bunch of other sources who asked to remain anonymous. Thanks also to Nomi Schneider, Esther Werdiger, Wayne Hoffman, and to our amazing outgoing cohort of interns, Yuli Shiloach, Hannah Barg, and Ari Wenig. You're all phenomenal people and producers, and we're absolutely delighted that you will forever be part of the Israel Story Mishpacha. A warm welcome to our new interns, Judah Kaufman and Abby Nushatz, who already played an integral part in the production of this episode. The original music in today's show was created by Ari Wenig together with Yochai Meital. Julie Subrin edited the episode, Ben Wallach recorded it, and Sela Weissblum mixed it all up. And finally, since so many of you have been so kind to write in and ask, I have some really great news. The Harmon family recently had their own coming out story. After three long months in the hospital, my father, David, was released last week and came home just in time for the holiday. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Metal, Shai Satran, Maya Kosover, Roy Gilron, Zev Levi, Ari Wenig, Hannah Barg, Rotem Tzin, Judah Kaufman, and Abby Nushatz. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back before too long with the podcast version of our new live show. So till then, Shalom Shalom, Chag Sameach, and Yalla Bye. <laughs> סתמו לי באר, ראיתי שאני מתדרדר למשבר, התחלתי עוזר, אבל עברנו את פרעות, נעבור גם את זה. טעות במחשב עלתה לי מיליון, כספומט טרף לי יתרת חשבון, מזכירה אלקטרונית דחתה לי ראיון, 
שופט אוטומטי, שלל לי רישיון. לעורך דין מכני, שלשלתי אסימון בחריץ הפה. אבל עברנו את פרעה, נעבור גם את זה. לפעמים אני חוטף את זה באוטובוס צפוף, או ביציאה ממגרש שתני דרוך ודחוף. לפעמים ברחוב מרוב חיכוך ושפשוף, מרוב ביקוש לאיזה אושר חטוף. בגב, בצלעות, לפעמים בפרצוף, המרפק הזה. אבל עברנו את פרעה, נעבור גם את זה. יצאנו לשתות, למחוץ את הראש, על הדלפק פגשנו את מינה, בני ושוש. אהלן על הכיפאק, אבל המשכנו לך הראש. דלפק שני שוב, מינה בני ושוש. דלפק שלישי ושלוש, את מי יכולנו לפגוש? כך זה חוזר. אבל עברנו את פרעה, נעבור גם את זה. הסתובבתי קצת זמן ללא מטרה וללא הגדרה וללא פשרה איבדתי גובה וקצת הכרה חשבתי אולי בכל זאת הגדרה שתיתן תשובה חד משמעית וברורה נקרעתי על זה אבל עברנו את פרעה נעבור גם את זה. ועכשיו אני תקוע בזמן החדיש, ולמען האמת אני די אדיש. המצב אמנם בישך איני מרגיש, אין לי לב לכל החומר שהמרקם מגיש, ושלטון העם שוב יורד אל הכביש. ואני מתבזה, אבל עברנו את פרעה, נעבור גם את זה. תראו חברים, לא מכל דבר אני באמת סובל. לא תמיד אני יודע מה כן ובמה זה גובל. אני בדרך כלל... אוהב לשמוע אנשים מדברים, אבל לפעמים אני פשוט מתפוצץ כשהם פולטים את כל השטויות שלהם. אני ממש כזה, אבל עברנו את פרעה, אז נעבור גם את זה. אני יודע, תראו, יש לפעמים מצבים, אתם יודעים, שבן אדם... יש בן אדם ומחליפים דעות ולפני שאתה יודע מי ומה הם מסתייפים ולפני שאתה יודע מה ומי אז אני שואל את עצמי מה, מה בעצם יוצא לי מכל זה <laughs> אבל עברנו את פרעה 
אז נעבור גם את זה, חברים. תראו, חברים, לך, מה אתם חושבים לעצמכם? מי יכול לקחת את כל זה? מי יכול לעשות את זה? הנוכחות הזאת של הזולת עם העמדה האחרת שלו. הוא לא חושב כמוני. הרי הייתי יכול לשפוך את דמו. <laughs> אז באמת, לפעמים זה צועק, זה מתפוצץ בחזה. אה? כן, אבל עברנו את פרעה. נעבור גם את זה. אני בעד חיי משפחה, אין ספק בזה. אני אוהב אישה, אני אוהב ילדים, אני אוהב עוזרות, אני אוהב נהגים. אני אוהב חייט, אני אוהב תופרת, אני אוהב גנן שיודע לנגה על הכלי הזה. <laughs> אבל עברתי אני את פרעה, אעבור גם את זה. Now let me give it to you in English. Sometimes in the future, I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come good. You know, mom, everybody.